Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamowski talk with Emily Storer, the Rita J. Kaplan and Susan B. Kaplan Curator of Jewelry at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. Hey everyone, this is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com. Welcome to the Jewelry District. I'm here in my home office in Los Angeles and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and uh, jckonline.com. I'm here in my apartment in New York. I don't know if it's an office or what it is, but it is what it is. It is what it is. How you doing, Rob? Anything uh, new and exciting going on this week? You know, it's always uh, always interesting, but uh, you know, it's cold over here and- and um, we're just uh, hoping for this stupid uh, pandemic to end. So. Yes, this never-ending pandemic. You know, I keep thinking, and it kind of ended a long time ago in different parts of the country, you know? I was in Vail until yesterday, and I just went for two days for an event with Oris Watches, which was really quite lovely and also very refreshing. I mean, every now and then, of course, it comes up in conversation, but you just had the sense that people were moving on. And I think it all sort of boils down to your own personal circumstances and how you've managed the last couple of years but yeah, a lot of a lot of people I think are ready to move on. I, I'm sure we're all ready to move on. And then by the time people are listening to this show, I will be in Tucson for the gem shows, which of course are ongoing and AGTA, GJX, all the other associated tent shows. I, everything's on full steam ahead. Centurion on. Most people, like I said, when this airs will have already returned from that show. So I think we are carrying on. And hopefully by the time we all get to Vegas, we'll have a different story to tell about about our experiences being uh, hopefully not quarantined. Anyways, I wanted to give a tiny little introduction to our guest today. So I spoke to her in the late fall of 21, so just a few months ago, about a story I was writing for the New York Times about art jewelry. And when I'd spoken, I spoke to her kind of late in my reporting, but pretty much everyone that I'd spoken to up until I got to her mentioned her. So the reason is because she's the country's only dedicated jewelry curator. Her name is Emily Storer, and she is the reader. Rita J. Kaplan and Susan B. Kaplan, Curator of Jewelry at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, and one of the most interesting voices in the jewelry world today. She's got one of the most expansive viewpoints I've ever really encountered, and when you when you hear her, I'm sure you'll agree. She's super well-spoken and really thoughtful, and Emily, we are so happy to have you. Welcome to the Jewelry District. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, so you're in Boston today, I take it. Are you in Boston? Is that where you're, have you been working from home at all, or do you, do you end up going into the museum? I'm in Boston. I'm sitting in the museum today in my office. For about a year, I was home, but more recently, we're back and forth working at home and in the office. January has been kind of a quiet month with people working more at home with Omicron making its way around. But generally, we're trying to return back to some sense of normalcy, but the staff has been greatly reduced. And so it's a very new situation for us here at the museum. Are you getting a lot of visitors now? I think visitation is back to somewhat of what it was before. For COVID, but we're closed now two days a week, and we used to be open seven days a week, so that's brand new that now we're closed on Tuesdays and Wednesdays to the public. Well, before we dive in, we have so many questions for you because you just seem to cover so many different aspects of this world, but we'd love to hear your background and your path to becoming the country's only full-time, maybe only, dedicated jewelry curator. Tell us what you studied and how you got to where you are. It's a bit of a crooked path, and it's it's a lot of being in the right place at the right time and being open-minded to possibilities. So I have an undergraduate degree in psychology, and I had planned to go to law school, and after working for a few years in the legal system, decided 
to do something different. And I found this incredible program at FIT in fashion and textile studies and packed my bags and moved to New York for two years. But I'm from Boston and I wanted to come back here after finishing my master's degree in New York. And so I was lucky enough that it happened that the MFA fashion and jewelry department was doing a major project at that same moment where they were moving offices and moving the collection. So I was hired here as an intern back in 2006. And from that came a one-year job working with the textile collection. And at the same time I was here for that one year, Yvonne Markowitz was appointed the first Kaplan curator of jewelry. And as my one-year project was ending, you know, she approached me about working with her in jewelry. And despite having a background in fashion, I didn't know a whole lot about jewelry. And she has become this incredible mentor, this very important figure in my life. And when she retired, I took over the position. So you're, you're, you're the only full-time curator. So like if there was a meeting, it would just be you, right? I know it's tricky language. So I'm the only full-time curator of jewelry in a fine art museum in the United States. At the MFA, I'm one of about 30 curators. I sit in the fashion and textile department because historically that has been a department that collects globally and the jewelry collection is global. It spans about 6,000 years and 22,000 objects. Whoa, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so was there anything in particular that excited you about jewelry? Yeah, I mean, and I think the same thing that excited me then excites me now. You know, I'm a fashion historian and I'm really interested in how jewelry relates to the overall look how people put things together, how styles change over time. And it's been surprising to me to think about why jewelry isn't a bigger part of the conversation in fashion history. And what I've come to think is that a lot of that has to do with materials, that the difference between textiles and metals is such that you don't tend to have someone who's you know either interested in or looking at both. And so the two fields have historically tended to be separate, but I hope that that's changing. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot in jewelry about how it is sort of siloed and especially I think I read something where you were talking about from your history of fashion you expected there to be a greater overlap but there just wasn't you know when you started you, you said you didn't know that much about jewelry so what were your main paths to learning other than obviously having a great mentor and someone like Yvonne in, in your world it is an ongoing journey, but right away, you know, Yvonne started introducing me to people in the field and she co-founded an organization called the Association for the Study of Jewelry and Related Dress with a woman named Elise Carlin. And Yvonne and Elise have always supported young people in the field, people with an interest in jewelry history. They have an annual conference and they have a magazine. And so they immediately embraced me with opportunities to attend the conference, to write for the magazine. And it was amazing to me just how generous the field was and how open they were to, you know, a young person coming in and wanting to learn. So I learned a lot in those early years from just tagging along with Yvonne to conferences and to meet jewelers and to meet historians. She just let me go with her everywhere. Uh, in addition to the work that we did at the museum where we would do close looking at jewelry together and we would talk about how to look at it, what to look at. When she hired me, which was, I guess, back in 2008, it was for a two-year project. And when the two-year project ended, she said, what are you going to do next? And I, I said, I hope that you have another job for me. And she said, no, I, I think that you should leave the museum. She said, I think that you should go and get your PhD. She was right. It was a good decision. So I, I left. I found a job teaching fashion at a small college down the street in Beacon Hill. It gave me the flexibility to pursue my PhD. And I went into my PhD program with an interest 
interest in jewelry in addition to fashion. And so that gave me the space to do a lot of research into jewelry history and into jewelry theory and studies that I wouldn't have otherwise had the time and space to do. Right. And I noticed your PhD was on the red carpet and the influence of the red carpet. Was there anything you kind of decided about that? Yeah. So my dissertation work was really linking together theories of identity. So the way people see themselves or want to be seen with the history of material culture and jewelry specifically. And I, I used Neil Lane's collection as a case study. And, and for those of you who don't know Neil Lane, he's a Los Angeles based collector and designer and retailer. And you might know him from The Bachelor or from, you know, his blending of jewelry to red carpet events. And so I was looking at his personal collection of historical jewelry which spans from about the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, and looking at the way it was used in the media from 1995 to 2005. And this was a moment where the red carpet was all about fashion, especially early on. There wasn't so much jewelry, and that changed over the course of those 10 years. And what I discovered, what I found was that you know, jewelry in that case was suddenly thought of as an element of fashion. Um, and I think that through Neil Lane's collection and others who were lending jewelry to the red carpet, Carpet, there was an increased interest in vintage jewelry that came about from that period. And I think in some ways, we still see the vintage element come out in contemporary design. Interesting. Deep dive. My God. So, Because one of my questions as you were talking is you seem to have this view onto the jewelry world that starts in, you know, ancient Egypt or, or even before then and all the way up to the red carpet in, you know, 2005, Circa Neil Lane. So it's like you seem to cover almost every aspect of it. Is there any aspect or category of jewelry you just haven't studied or don't know that much about? Oh, absolutely. I would say there's more that I don't know than I do know. But, you know, the collection here at the MFA, I mean, there's obviously strengths and weaknesses, but it does span from, you know, antiquity to today, really. I mean, we're collecting jewelry that's made today. So it does force me to be a generalist in a lot of ways and take a big picture view of the field and how it relates to art. You know, we have all these questions specifically about the collection, everything from how you put it together, you know, how you determine authenticity, especially when it comes to antiquities, where the gaps are in your current holdings. Could you speak a little bit about, you know, where the pieces come from, how you vet them, just the process of sort of introducing something into your collection? Yeah, so things come into the museum collection in a variety of different ways. Today, the majority of things come in through gifts, but we also purchase works of art. Historically, as far as the jewelry collection goes, much of the collection came to us through excavations in the Nile Valley in Egypt and in Sudan. So the core of our collection is, is that material. At the same time, going back 150 years when the museum started collecting, we were collecting jewelry. The very first thing we ever acquired was a bronze Cypriot ring. Um, and that just started the collection. In the early 20th century, we were collecting Boston artists who were working here making jewelry um, in the arts and crafts style. And we acquired Acquired work by the first woman jeweler in, you know, 1911. There's also, you know, collectors who are collecting for a museum or collecting for themselves, but will donate things. We get things, you know, sometimes from artists who want to have their work represented in the collection. These decisions on what comes in and what doesn't come in are always based on a collection strategy, which is a document that gets revisited every few years. And I'm in the process right now of working with my colleagues to work out what our collection strategy is right 
right now. And, you know, I think that collecting practices have changed over the years, and they're certainly changing now. Even in the last seven years that I've been in this role, I've seen it change where we used to take in many more things. And the process is becoming much more selective, both because of staffing and the amount of time that it takes, even when something's a gift to process it, but also space, you know, as we run out of space and think about, you know, what we have space for, what we really want to prioritize. There's just a lot of factors I think that people don't realize in terms of what decisions go into whether or not we accept something into the museum collection. And at the end of the day, only one to 3% of the collection goes on view. So, um, you know, most of it is in storage behind the scenes. And, you know, I'm constantly hosting classes and visits from, you know, enthusiasts and scholars and groups to see things that are not on view. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. So you have 22,000 pieces. Do you know them all? Or that's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. No, I I don't know them all. I've seen them all, um, but there's no way for me to know all of those objects. And they're not all of equal quality, as you can imagine. So, you know, I know all the stars, but we're always discovering new things. But as we explored the collection over the last, you know, 15 years or so, we have found things that were previously cataloged in ways that were incorrect, or, you know, we have more information. For example, um, an 18th century stomach or brooch that's about six inches, maybe nine inches tall, would have been worn on the front of a dress that for a long time had been listed as being green glass. And now we have the scientific technology to say, oh, no, actually, those are emeralds. And so we change, you know, the designations or, you know, jewelry that's in the ancient department that had long been cataloged as um, copies of antiques. And you go and you look at it and it's like, oh, no, actually, that's Castellani. It is a copy of an antique, but it's an important 19th century example. And you find the marks that, you know, something had been sitting there for 100 years and, and nobody looked at it that way. So the stories that the collection tells are always changing. You mentioned that you know the the stars, and I wonder if when you say that, if one or two or three pieces immediately spring to mind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Things come to mind. So we've been collecting jewelry, as I said, for 150 years, but we weren't collecting any fine jewelry, really. And so it's only in the last few years that we've been focused on that. And so some of the pieces that I've just come to love the most are pieces in the fine jewelry collection. One of the, or the work that was the first thing that Yvonne acquired when the position was created was a brooch that was designed for Marjorie Merriweather Post, the General Foods heiress with the house outside of DC that maybe some of you or your listeners have visited Hillwood. They have great jewelry exhibitions there and a great collection. So this brooch belonged to her. It was made around 1929 when she was preparing to debut at the Court of St. James and she she loves emeralds and was looking for something emerald to wear. It has a 60 carat emerald at its center. It's a Mughal emerald carved in the 17th century. And the piece of jewelry that it sits in today was designed by Marcus and Company, sold by Marcus and Company, and made by, fabricated by Oscar Heyman and brothers. So this is an interesting piece of jewelry because it has so many different stories that it can tell. And it's why it's one of my favorites, because we can talk about the fact that the stone was mined in Colombia and carved in India in the 17th century on one side, carved in the 19th century on the other side. We can talk about Marjorie Merriweather Post. We can talk about Art Deco style. We could talk about Marcus and Company. I love the jewelry that allows for these many, many different conversations, depending on, you know, what 
the topic is. So that's a favorite. Another favorite is a brooch that was made by LaCloche in the 1920s. It has this beautiful cherry blossom design and this black enamel frame and onyx branches and on a ground of diamonds. And it's one of those jewels that you turn over and it's as beautiful on the back with all of this saw and piercing work as it is on the front. It's a, just an incredible piece of jewelry to look at and to handle. It probably during its lifetime was worn both as a brooch and I imagine maybe even as a belt buckle because you can imagine this stunning jewel, you know, adorning a 1920s dress, you know, a simple black dress and making intersections, connections like that between fashion and jewelry, something I'm always really excited about. We've been collecting jewelry with great provenance. And so that piece belonged to Queen Mary. And, you know, I think that people love the stories that jewelry can tell. And we have a little note card that comes with it. It says she gave this piece of jewelry away. It says to Angela from Mary R. And she gave it in 1952, a few decades after it had been designed. Uh, most recently, we acquired this incredible jewel that's actually on view now that is the starfish brooch that belonged to Claudette Colbert that was designed by Juliette Moutard and that was made by the House of Boivin in Paris in the 1930s. And this was a real major acquisition for us just before the pandemic. Um, and I'm really thrilled that as of last month, it is now on view along with a great photo of Claudette Colbert wearing it in our jewelry gallery. Oh, I saw that on your website. I saw that great photo. You know, I wanted to ask you about the gaps in the collection and, and if there's anything in particular that you're looking for now because you think the museum needs to burnish its collection or that there's some area you've been remiss in, in expanding. Absolutely. I would say over the last five years, I've been focused on adding works by women jewelers. And, you know, going forward, I'm really interested in adding more works by artists of color. And so along those lines, I recently acquired a bracelet that was made by Winifred Mason. And Winifred Mason had worked or been the teacher to Art Smith. Art Smith is probably one of the most well-known black jewelers of the studio jewelry movement. And Winifred Mason had always been talked about in a really kind of passing way. And not much of her work was known. I had never come across a piece for sale before, but uh, Melanie Grant and Frank Everett from Sotheby's put together a great sale last fall of work by black jewelers. And in that there was historical work by Winifred Mason. And we were able to acquire a piece there that is inspired by the time that she spent in Haiti and probably a drum design that she had encountered there. And so we've been able to add that work to exhibit alongside the incredible collection we have of Art Smith and to really tell a new story about her importance. I think that really elevates her. I hope it's the first of a number of works that we have by her, but we are gonna be able to put that on view in an exhibition that's opening later this spring on jazz, art and jazz, and so excited to have some jewelry included in there. I read an interview where you said sometimes it's hard to get visitors interested in things that are small and that jewelry is small. Does the, the jewelry area in uh, non-COVID times, does it get decent traffic? You know, I think that sometimes it, if someone's in the jewelry gallery, they're looking closely at what's in there. But if we're talking about one of the larger galleries that has paintings on the wall and decorative art surrounding you and the jewelry there as well, it's easy to overlook it, I think, because of its size. But in an installation like the one I'm working on with colleagues on art and jazz, you know, there'll be a whole case dedicated to jewelry. And I think when things are grouped together, it makes it a bit more powerful and hopefully gets visitors to stop and read and look in a way that if it was just a single piece of jewelry here and there, they might just pass it by. I think we've sort of mentioned this, well, certainly we mentioned it when we introduced you, when we talk about you being the only jewelry curator in the country. Why is that? 
I, why, why aren't there more? I don't know. I've long thought that there would be more and I still hope and think that there might be more, you know, in the future. But at the MFA, we're very lucky to have had, you know, a benefactor who had a great vision for what jewelry could be in the museum. And, and that's Susan Kaplan. And she endowed the jewelry gallery, but recognized that there was going to need to be somebody on staff who could know the jewelry collection and who could program that gallery space. And so without that vision, without her initiating jewelry, as a focus at the MFA, we certainly wouldn't be where we are today. And who is she? What should we know about Susan? She is a great supporter of jewelry. Her father, her mother and her father had founded Kaplan Testing in New York. So the program that everybody you know goes through and taking and preparing for the SATs. They were both teachers in Brooklyn and then at some point, you know, stopped teaching and focused on this tutoring program that became Kaplan Testing. And she and her mom loved jewelry. And I think even maybe her grandmother. And, you know, we all have these stories, you know, of how jewelry holds these secrets and these memories and you remember times when you were given something or when you bought something or when you went shopping together for something. And for Susan, a lot of her jewelry collecting is that. It's these memories that she has of spending time with her family and with her mom and just loving and appreciating jewelry. I mean, she is a lifelong learner. She's endlessly listening to Zoom lectures and educating herself in jewelry. She's visiting dealers and looking closely at things, visiting every museum she can. And it's always been her passion. So she's, for many decades, been involved with the museum. And we are all fortunate that when our previous director, Malcolm Rogers, asked her what area she wanted to focus on when they were undergoing this big capital campaign, she said jewelry, and that he was really open to that and enthusiastic about it. And in some ways, the rest is history because we've just had such great success in jewelry since then, in both building the collection, having this incredible gallery space, a really supportive publications department that has supported jewelry books over the years. And, you know, now Susan's not alone in her support of jewelry. And there's a whole group of collectors and supporters here in Boston that are part of jewelry at the MFA. Do you think it's underappreciated as an art form, jewelry? Absolutely. I think it's underappreciated. And I think as the MFA changes that, and as other museums hopefully change that, we've seen exhibits at many museums over the last few years that showed the popularity of jewelry. I think the reputation of it alongside the other fine and decorative arts changes too. I think most people recognize the storytelling capabilities that jewelry holds. Everybody has a story related to jewelry, but it just takes a reframing of that for people to recognize that some of these stories belong alongside works by other famous artists in museums. Right. And do you have like a favorite designer or a favorite period or? I think it just depends on the moment. It really, I think that my favorite changes depending on what the project is that I'm working on in a lot of ways. So as I'm working on the starfish, that's my favorite. And I have a feeling the starfish will be my favorite for a long time. But as I start to work on another project, you know, I imagine that that my interests will shift. You mentioned your work with the European art fair, Tefaf, and I guess there you you see both antique or vintage estate jewels, but also the work of contemporary designers along the lines of Wallace Chan, who I believe you, did you contribute to the book recently on, on his artwork, or on his jewelry? Yes. So I, I'm one of the authors on the book that just came out on Wallace Chan's Butterflies. 
And he is someone that I've gotten to know well over the last, I guess, five or six years, ever since that article came out in the New York Times, The Stone um, in me, my colleague from Harvard wrote to him being really impressed by his work and by that article and, and invited him to Boston. And she reached out to me to say that he was coming and he wanted to come to the MFA. And um, really that started a friendship between us. And since then, I've had a chance to host him at the MFA a number of times. I've visited Hong Kong and most recently had a chance to contribute to this new beautiful book on Wallace Chan's butterfly jewelry. I'm one of five authors there. He compiled a, a group of authors. Was that, was that one of your stories, Vic, or no? No, although I did interview him back in 2006 for a story for the Times on titanium, which of course he was in the contemporary jewelry space and the very you know high-end space certainly a pioneer. There's so much to say about him because he's not just somebody who works with interesting materials. He's a carver. I mean, of course, Emily, you could school us many times over on what makes him special. But when you think about contemporary jewelers and the kind of jewelers that will be remembered as the Fabergés and the Laliques of, of the 21st century, I mean, dare I say he'd be one of them. Is that, would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I, I absolutely think so. And as I'm thinking about, you know, what I want to add to the collection, adding a work by Wallace would be very, very high on my list. His work is extraordinary. I think, as you said, not just for his innovation in materials, but his design, his philosophy. He's hard to put in a box to say he's a jewelry designer because he is so much more than that. He's in so many ways a magician. I have to say, just to personally, I have a piece by Wallace Chan in my own collection because in 2006, he showed at Baselworld at the Three Kings Hotel. And in the press kit, they gave out little pendants of titanium that he had designed. Lucky you. Exactly. Lucky me. I have to shoot my own horn here. You know, I spoke to a jeweler not that long ago who was using artificial intelligence to create his jewelry collection. And I wondered if you think there would ever be a place for that kind of jewelry in the MFA's collection. Yeah, I'm sure at some point, you know, it would be something that will be too hard to resist. But my colleagues put together an exhibition a number of years ago called Textile that looked at fashion and textiles and technology. And they asked me to be part of the exhibition. And in looking around at the way that technology was being used in jewelry and CAD CAM in particular, I saw it as very different from the way that technology was being used in fashion and textiles. And I wasn't so interested in it. I still feel like the use of CAD CAM in jewelry is being developed and I'm kind of looking at it a little bit, but I haven't seen anything that really excites me about it yet. And if if you are like me, uh, you know, I, I know about the industry, but I'm ignorant of jewelry history. What's like a great resource to, to kind of catch up? There are so many. I mean, so many great jewelry books have been published recently. I think it's an ever evolving library of resources. Um, I think also websites like the MFA site has great resources for jewelry. You know, as you as you become interested in different makers to look at websites like that. I think that there's really seminal texts out there like depending on what area of jewelry history you want to dive into, like jewelry in America or 19th century French jewelry, you know, there are great books that you should definitely add to your library. But I think, you know, in keeping up with what's happening today, you know, there's JCK, there's Metalsmith Magazine, there's lots of publications you could subscribe to that would just keep you up on what's happening now. All right, I'll subscribe to JCK. <laughs> 
And then we'll wrap up very soon. But I wonder, you know, besides the jazz exhibition where you mentioned the Winifred Mason piece will be on display, anything else that we can look forward to in terms of jewelry going on this year at the MFA or for that matter, any other institution that you admire? I mean, at the MFA, we have a number of things in the works. The starfish will be on view for the next year. So hopefully a few listeners will be able to make their way to Boston to see that. And there's jewelry sprinkled all over the MFA. And so there's lots of places to see it. I am working on an exhibition. I don't have a date for it yet, but the exhibition I'm planning will look at the intersection of fashion and jewelry and celebrate our costume jewelry collection in particular. And so I look forward to at some point sharing more about that project. I feel like I need to fly. I'm in LA, of course. It's a little bit of a longer schlep, but I'm dying to see everything. These ancient Egyptian beads all the way up to the starfish to anything else you might have. What an expansive, wonderful collection. Thank you so much, Emily, for chatting with us about it. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.